In the current pandemic, there's a particular aptness in the choice of the Isle of Wight as the pilot location for the NHS coronavirus contact tracing app. Separated from Hampshire by a couple of miles of seawater, the island is, as it were, following to the letter the rules of social distancing, in its case from the rest of mainland Britain. The results of this experiment will be closely followed by, among others, Eivor Oborn, Professor of Healthcare Management here at Warwick Business School. And in this Core Insights podcast, she'll be explaining why she believes, subject to conditions she'll outline in a moment, that some form of tracking app represents one of the best ways of coping with the pandemic. Via a telephone link, of course, I asked her first to describe the British app and how it works. It's a small piece of software that you download through an app store, just like you would any other app, such as uh, finding the train schedule or Google Maps or Instagram. Uh, It's a small piece of software that sits on your phone, and what it does is it looks for other phones that have a similar piece of software in it, and it connects to that other piece of software in someone else's phone by a small Bluetooth signal, which is a um, a very low-intensity emission that comes from the phone, and it has a few meters radius. And then it, in a sense, shakes hands with that other Bluetooth signal, and it stores the, um, not the telephone number, but an ID, a little tag that is relevant to each phone, so that over a period of a week, that little piece of software will collect tags from all the phones that have been in contact with your app, so that it can contact them and send them a message if you should find out you have the virus. But isn't hurdle number one that in order for it to work, people need to download it? And if they don't, it won't. Well, exactly. So it could be it's a chicken and an egg problem, which is often the issue with uh, platform technology. You need to have mass use in order for it to add value. And if I'm the only one who's downloaded this app, then it will do me no good. So is the answer that some form of coercion be brought into play? Well, no, I don't think coercion um, is the way to go. I, I do think that there's an important element of trust that needs to be established. So currently, the government seems to have been focusing on developing the app and testing the app a little bit. Behind the scenes, we're not quite sure how it's being tested, how it's being developed, who's been involved. Uh, I, I think that the government will embark on more of a, a, a public health visibility, trying to understand the message behind the app made accessible to people, similar to the way that we were told to wash hands and, and stay inside. Uh, we aren't forced to wash our hands, but there's been a lot of public messaging so that we now trust the idea that washing hands does give me a strong level of protection. And indeed, most of us have dry skin on our hands now from all the washing. So it wasn't coerced, but the, the, the behavioral insights are, are, in a sense, can be driven from public health messages. And I, I expect that that will be the way that the UK government, uh, as a start, will try to induce the population to take up the app. Now, you've spent many years researching healthcare technology and people's reactions to it. Which way do you think people's minds will be working now, in favour of it or suspicious of it? Well, it's a very good question. And I think it's a bit of an illusion to think that if, well, let's say 60% of the population does download the app, that 60% will actually use it effectively. 
And so there's the question of the use, and there's the question of the signing up, if you will. So many of us have signed up to all sorts of organizations or even uh, online communities, but we don't participate. And so it's a two-knobbed question. Uh, I think that in general, if the government can increase the trust and the transparency and deal with some of the issues around the app, that a large portion Maybe I, I I don't think 80% will start off using it, but I do think that we will get a significant number of people willing to sign up for the app. Then the question is, does the technology actually work effectively? Because even if even if 100% of people sign up and the technology isn't working effectively, we still don't get anywhere. So there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle that need to fit in, and people taking it up is only one of those. Because you suggest that such is the speed of the spread of the virus, only some sort of technological solution using data and algorithms and so on can solve the problem. A manual tracing system would simply be too slow. Well, exactly. And the challenge is that the virus grows quicker depending on its prevalence in the population, of course, than what can be tracked manually. So we need a more efficient means of tracking it. However, I do want to note that let's say we can keep the R levels low enough so that we, we can, in some sense, stay on top of it. So the, the, the South Korea has, has uh, I believe, used this approach. Rather than using an app, per se, on each phone, they actually track the movements of people through other means. So, you know, CTV footage capture, captures me readily if I'm driving around the, the country or using underground or on passing by a store. We actually are more tracked than we realize. Every time I use a plastic card, credit card, debit card, that transaction attaches me to a place at a point in time. So we can actually be tracked quite easily already. So this is just systematizing it. But again, the question people might be asking is, is the price in terms of invasions of privacy, increased surveillance, worth paying to end the lockdown? This is a question of values, personal values. It's a political question. And so there, it's not a right and a wrong. It really depends on what kind of society we want. But it can help the country economically. It can help. If the technology works correctly, then it can help with safety. If the technology is not working correctly, then it won't deliver the benefits. But let's proceed on the premise that it will work and that, in fact, that there are the connections and the handshakes electronically going on that are accurate. In that case, I do think it will help us move towards a safer society in the sense that my uh, my next-door neighbors who I might have visited will be safer because they will know they will be contacted immediately if there's an issue. The health service will be safer in the sense that we will be able to stay on top of the disease potentially quicker if it works correctly. And I do think that in a time of crisis, we, are all, we all need to be willing to look after each other a bit more. It really depends on if we have a sort of a, a communal view of how we ought to live, i.e. take responsibility for each other, or if we have a more um, individualistic view that it's me for myself and I really don't want anyone to gain a knowledge about me unless I get some completely tangible benefits from it.
But the historian Yuval Harari uh, has remarked, and he isn't the only person to have said it, that the danger is that measures taken during emergencies have a habit of remaining in place long after the emergency itself has passed. Is that a danger, do you think? Well, certainly what this has been the case in the past, and, and I think income tax came in as a temporary measure during the Second World War, and it's still with us. It, it, it does happen. In the case of this app, it's not hard to delete the app so I don't see that this particular mechanism is going to necessarily last unless I choose to let this app stay on my phone. But just like I can delete Instagram if I don't want it anymore, I, I could delete this one. But would it come with inducements or extra benefits, if you like, to make it more attractive to download, linking it to, I don't know, food deliveries or access to further healthcare services and so on? I do think that the government will provide some level of inducement. Certainly, the idea of sending the person a testing kit would be a start. And I think they've actually, I've, I've, I've read that that is indeed what, the, what would happen. So the reason why I would be wanting to self-isolate is because I realize, oh, I have symptoms, therefore I upload my data to the, the, from the smart app to the central repository, and then I need to know for sure whether or not that is the case. Am I infected? So I'll get a test kit. If, in fact, then I find out that I am infected, then a battery of services could be delivered through the app. I do think, however, that um, some of these services will still be made available to those who don't have the app because a lot of people actually won't be able to use the phone for different reasons. And uh, I don't think that the government wants to exclude those from care, if that makes sense. And I suppose if people see it is working, they'll be more likely to use it and tell others to use it too. Exactly. So I do think that it's very important that the technical issues are woven out of the the, the, the current app. There's a lot of discussion about the technical side of it. and. If the technical side is up to par, then exactly as you, you suggested, I do think that the momentum will come from others um, selling it to their own social networks because it's difficult for the government to sell it to us, though I do think that the government still has an important role to do in building trust and transparency and a psychological contract with its people which I don't think it's done to date. And I suppose one advantage is that it is a means of us policing ourselves instead of being policed by the boys in blue, ready to hand out fines or to arrest us even. Well, yes, there is a sense of, it is a sense of policing myself, but I think it's also us, in a sense, policing each other because it becomes a community task. We are depending on the fact that if, somebody sitting beside me on the public transport test positive that I am being kept safe in some sense that if they know that they become infected, I get warned. And so it is a surveillance that we do for each other and on each other as opposed to necessarily big brother watching. There is, of course, the big brother in a, at some level, the surveillance of public health, but we, we tend to get that anyway with a public health system that is centrally controlled because all of our 
our records and all of our access and a lot of our personal information. The government knows where I live. The government knows how much money I make. The government knows an awful lot about me. It knows when I drive my car and any infractions I've had. So we already have a lot of information about us that the government holds. This is really um, trying to track information about the spread of the disease. And if I'm, if I'm willing to in a sense, help surveil myself and others around me, I will actually contribute to understanding how that disease spreads more. So I contribute, I contribute to uh, value in the sense that I'm helping produce new knowledge about the disease because we know so little about it. So in terms of the extra data, above and beyond what the authorities already have on us, you'd say it's quite small. It isn't in my view. So, you know, I think the key, the key issue would be is if I don't want the government or the central repository to know that I've been in contact with another phone user, because that's really the only data that it's collecting is where have I been in contact which other phone users have I been in contact with? It doesn't actually say where. So it doesn't know if I, if I was in contact with that person on public transport or in Soho or at a restaurant or wherever. And actually, if I had a very clandestine meeting, I could just leave my phone at home because it is, after all, tracking my phone and not on my body. It's not a wristband attached to me, which some countries are using. So actually, I still do have quite a large element of control I often leave my phone at home. I go walk my dog, and that's part of the problem with the use of it. Is you know we, we need to we need to understand whether or not people are using it as we expected. But if I really have a, a secret meeting, then yeah, don't bring your phone. And those kinds of meetings, if if you are infected, you ought to remember that you were in contact with that particular phone user, and you would be able to say that. Um, to the manual tracers, oh, make sure that that person knows. Now, will the acceptability of such a device increase with time, or do you think it might diminish? In other words, the longer the lockdown goes on, is it more or less likely people will object? I think it all depends on how well the technology works. You know, if if the app is only making marginal contacts, and if we're not gaining good momentum on the accurate way of identifying phone users, uh, there's been issues about whether the technology will be awake enough to actually make the electronic handshake. If that goes wrong, then there won't be a lot of users, and I don't think it will then increase with time. It might mean that the government will find another way of tracing us, tracking us. I do think that we need some mechanisms of tracing. So if that doesn't work, they will come up with another idea, I think. Now, this may be beyond the scope of your professional expertise, but do you fear the slippery slope argument? I mean, what's to stop it being modified in the future by software developers to bring in I don't know, facial recognition technology and all sorts of other unexpected things that could impinge on our human rights and our freedoms. Well, we already have facial recognition on all the CCTV cameras sitting around London. And I think it's probably, I I believe I've read somewhere that it's the part of the world with the most CCTV cameras per square distance. 
So facial recognition is already in use. I don't think it will necessarily be able to recognize faces from my phone if it's sitting in the background. Many of us have devices on our phone that already recognize our voices and recognize what we say. So if we have Siri on, uh, there's a number of apps. I think Instagram is one of them. If you use WeChat, already what we say, including I have my phone nearby and I'm giving, I'm speaking here now. I don't know if my Siri is turned on, but if it were, then all of this information is actually being surveilled. So we don't realize how much surveillance there already is, but it's not necessarily by the government. It is by big tech and private sector. So I do think one of the questions that lays before us is who do we trust more, the government to help steer this or big tech? And I don't think that debate has actually been pushed out into the public foray enough. And I suppose the big question is, is it being used for good, for the beneficial purpose of combating the disease? Well, exactly. And I think that that is part of what the transparency and the psychological contract for the government and its people that really needs to be stepped up. We, when the, the use of the information actually helps solve a problem or delivers new insight or is the foundation for some key turning point in the disease metric is published in, the, in, in a way that helps save lives and helps the healthcare system react appropriately, then I think people need to be affirmed and be told that, look, this is what that information has produced so that we see that, indeed, this information isn't just being sucked up into a black hole like a lot of other information seems to be, but actually is coming back to us and adding value. Because if I can see that the health service has been able to be much more efficient because it knows where the pandemic is trending and it knows where the ventilators and the PPE needs to be because of the app use, then I see that actually I have helped save tax dollars. And that is therefore value to me and it gives me cause and reason to continue using it. So again, it really depends on the government or the central repository holders, whether that's Public Health England, which is sort of another shorthand for the government in the way I'm speaking now, uh, that, that has to be clear and that really will help the overall trust from the users. And in your view, a tracing app is the only or certainly the best way of combating the spread of the pandemic. If it works well. If it works well. And that is still a big question in my mind. Can we just look now at other technologies that are coming to the fore in the field of healthcare, perhaps prompted by this pandemic? Well, there are a lot of technologies that have been in existence and in use that now are being repurposed. Uh, tremendous uh, technologies. Uh, one of the technologies, for example, is um, we've, we've been studying, this is a, a group of researchers that I collaborate with from CDI, Cambridge Digital Innovation. We are studying a, a company, Cradle Inc., and they're the only health and well-being platform that uses TV to keep users socially connected with friends and family. And it also, through this device, can connect um, internet devices, so your phone and, and other wearables or pieces of technology that connect to the internet in order to help health. 
And, and this is very important because isolation is one of the key factors that is helping bring down this sort of R number, if you will, for this current pandemic. We need to stay alone in our homes. And isolation is becoming a big problem. It's contributing to mental health issues and well-being issues. And this technology here is very unique because it uses a television rather than needing a smartphone. It doesn't need anything complicated. And almost every household knows how to operate a TV. And even people who are isolated from the digital to divide, if you will, some of the elderly who, whose hand functionality or visual acuity might not enable them to use a small little phone, they can press the button and get their TV working. And this, in a sense, camera that sits on the television actually connects them to anyone else that they want to be connected to through their te- television. But what will people actually see on the screen? Well, for example, it, it might work similarly to FaceTime for iPhone users. So if, if, for example, I wanted to contact my parents who I can't go and visit, I can call them. In this case, I would use an app rather than uh, because it's easier for me to use my smartphone, but it's, they don't have a smartphone and they do have connectivity, but they use their TV that's easier. Then I could actually speak to them. They would see my face. I could actually have then a conversation where my face is clear to them because it's on a big screen. A phone is kind of small. You don't quite see it. Uh, but they would be able to see and you could, uh, you know, hold your kids in front. You could show them your dog, your new plant. You could actually stand by and do some baking while they watch and give some direction. So you can be in social proximity, though, in a virtual means. But you could also bring in social care. So if there's a district nurse who is wondering how you're coping, uh, let's say you've just had a wound and you had the dressing on a week ago and they're wondering whether or not to change it, then they could have a look at it over the phone and actually give some kind of an assessment based on their visual information as to whether or not this person either needs to come to a clinic or has somebody sent to them. And this is a safer way of making sure that people don't need to leave their home for care when it can be delivered uh, in the context of their home where they know there isn't a virus. Because, of course, if you come to a clinic, you don't know what you're exposing yourself to. And the beauty of this particular device is that we can choose those trusted contexts that we want to have access to it. So, for example, if I want to have my, my few neighbors, my family, uh, my my doctor uh, or the district nurse or some social care provider, let's say I'm part of a an Alcoholics Anonymous group, we, we, you know, we could allow ourselves to meet quite easily in this particular forum, which doesn't preclude people who don't have smartphones or internet, good internet access or who are digitally savvy enough to know how to, for example, set up Zoom. So it functions similarly to Zoom, but it's much, much easier. There's one button you press, and the, the, the pressing is all prompted through the television screen. Would you like to speak to your daughter, yes or no? And so you, you click yes. But is virtual contact contact at all, without a hug, without a handshake, without human touch? Well, it is devoid of touch, but it does bring you voice. 
And it does bring you vision and a sense of seeing somebody. And of course, you know, contact, physical contact might be better. However, I live on the east side of England. I could have daily contact with someone in Manchester, and I couldn't actually visit them daily because I don't live next door. And so some forms of communication are actually improved. So there's pluses and there's minuses. And, I, I, you know, the, the way that people actually respond to this might be individual, but part of what we're studying in following Cradle as a new technology, which is just emerging, is to look at how does it influence uh, social isolation, feelings of loneliness, feelings of depression, feelings of self-efficacy. These are all the kinds of things that we're looking at to see how they're being influenced or changed based on what this new technology affords in their life. For example, for me as an older, and let's say I, I have social, I have mobility issues and I can't actually leave because of arthritis or I need walkers and gate aids and transportation issues, I can still, for example, uh, meet with five or six other people and, and have a book club and have a discussion and read the book and talk to them rather than passively watching a television screen that I'm not interacting with. So it gives me a means to be creative about bringing in different forms of social contact. It doesn't have to just be hello from the daughter and check up from the nurse, but we can, we can be in contact with a physio. We can be in contact with people who want to give us uh, that we can participate together in a exercise class. Now we could just watch on a TV, but there's no interaction. If the television, I'm, I'm you know, downloading some Jane Fonda workout, which dates me here, but I, I don't know the latest workout people. <laughs> but you know that there's no there's no interaction because it's 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 separate. It's not coming. It, it's not um, an interactive medium. Whereas this is a way for me then to do a little exercise in my home, and I can watch my other person doing it and we do it together and we can speak about oh i'm too tired now oh, i gotta go get a drink of water it gives us the sense that we're doing it together and this doing together is very important for connectivity and socialization so the virus i suppose is forcing a rethink in the whole field of healthcare. oh yes indeed it is and there is such a tsunami of new technologies that have been sitting there for a long time but they haven't been used. These are on the agenda of the strategic thinkers of healthcare organizations because it does provide a wider range of access. So what's sometimes called is omni-channels. Can we get different ways of going to the family doctor? Is there only one way, i.e. call at 8.30 in the morning, wait half an hour till you get through, make your appointment? That, that is the only way that has been the case. But now there are other means, and maybe when the pandemic is over, I might prefer to go back to the old ways. But I think that given the range of society segments that we have, using technology to think of new forms of services, to think about uh, more cost-efficient ways of delivering the same level of care, and also keeping, I think this is an important part, keeping the healthcare staff safe if they can consult at a distance. And there's a lot of technologies now in the space of sort of telemedicine that are blossoming to this effect, helping to keep the staff safe by being contactless assessments and keeping people safe 
uh, patients in that they don't have to necessarily go to a clinic where they might get infected. And it also helps people who are needing ongoing support from a healthcare person, but not necessarily needing to be in hospital, but they can be monitored from home. And then you have a sense of safety with that. So while we shouldn't be grateful for the pandemic, on the positive side, lots of groundbreaking possibilities are emerging as a result of it. There may very well be. There's always a silver lining in the cloud. That that certainly is my philosophy. And there, there have been benefits in the sense that we have technology and we're now we're finding ways of appropriating them. And hopefully these uses of technology will stay with us, though perhaps be thought through very carefully to see what the unintended consequences might be. Uh, there is always the risk that we go back to our old ways and trying to embed new ways of working and being open to new ideas and new practices in healthcare is, from my point of view, very much should be welcomed because the, the, the whole sector changes very slowly when it comes to technology of this sort. Eivor, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Eivor Oborn, Professor of Healthcare Management at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast.